The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon or evening and welcome everyone. This is depending on your time zone, of course. This is Joe Schuldenrein and I'm pleased to invite you to the seventh installment of our series, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. First, I'd like to extend my appreciation to those who tuned in to last Wednesday's program on the Veterans Curation Project. That topic deviated somewhat from traditional archaeological fare insofar as we began to look at the contributions that archaeology is actually generating for the greater good. The topic here was the implementation of a project that allowed returning veterans from Afghanistan and Iraq to develop skills that would allow them to return to the civilian world. They did this by learning such skills as word processing, database management, and information technologies. These skills were immediately applied to archaeological artifact collections that have been neglected and stored for decades in museum vaults and storage facilities. The veterans applied these newly learned skills to sort and classify the artifacts and provide order to the collections. As a result, rehabilitation, per se, became a watchword for veterans and the collections alike in a project that had benefits all around. So I'd like to thank my guests at the VCP project, Sonny Trimble, Lori Ott, Kate McMahon, and Cody Gregory for their participation. We received a number of emails and some call-ins that acknowledged the imaginative solutions applied by the participants. We also heard from some who actually praised the government for providing the funds that made this monumental effort possible. So along these lines, I'd like to encourage the listenership to keep the emails flowing, and please don't hesitate to call the station at 866-472-5788. That number again, 866-472-5788. With today's topic, Archaeology and the Law, we're continuing on our theme of the archaeology of relevance. We're going to explore the ways in which archaeology has been transformed from an esoteric and largely academic pursuit to an applied field over the span of less than 50 years. With me to trace the emergence of our field in its pragmatic incarnation, if you will, are two of the leading authorities on the ins and outs of what is now known as cultural resource management. Archaeology is but a part of the process of legal compliance in this field and preservation, but it is an important one and one that has occupied the professional interests of our guests ever since the laws were instituted and applied. My first guest is Dr. Tom King, 
Tom King may be even called the father of the Section 106 process or the primary piece of federal legislation for archaeology and cultural resources preservation. He's an archaeologist who has gone beyond archaeology to practice, practice in and preach about heritage or cultural resource management. His career includes research in California and the Micronesian Islands, management of consulting groups, helping establish historic preservation systems in the governments of Micronesia, oversight of project reviews for the federal government's advisory council for historic preservation, service as a litigant and expert witness in heritage-related lawsuits, and work as a consultant and educator. Tom has authored eight books on archaeology and heritage cultural resource management, as well as many journal articles, popular articles, and Internet offerings on heritage topics. He also conducts his own research with the Historic Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery that focuses on the 1937 disappearance of aviation pioneer Amelia Earhart. Dr. Lynn Sebastian is an archaeologist specializing in the American Southwest and has carried out fieldwork in New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and Arizona. Dr. Sebastian received her Ph.D. from the University of New Mexico, where she currently holds an adjunct associate professorship. She's a former New Mexico state archaeologist and state historic preservation officer and currently is director of historic preservation programs at the SRI Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing historic preservation through education, training, and technical assistance and research. Dr. Sebastian is a past president of the Society for American Archaeology and the current president-elect of the Register of Professional Archaeologists. I want to welcome you both to our program, and I'm honored to have you here. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Um, let's begin the conversation, I think, with the genesis or emergence of the, uh, the, the cultural preservation movement, if, as it were. And I think, I think we would all agree that this has to be sort of tied to the uh, emergence of the environmental movement in the late 60s and 1970s. Tom is someone who has been critical in actually spearheading the, the programs that we're going to discuss. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on how this emerged out of the environmental movement and how preservation formed its identity? Uh, sure, Joe. Um, let me first say that if I'm any kind of father of this program, it's a very illegitimate fatherhood. But um, <laughs> I think you really have to go back farther, back before the beginning of the environmental movement, to look at the the initiation of archaeological law, laws, governmental procedures for dealing with archaeology uh, that really go back to the uh, late 18th century when you start seeing historic monuments being designated for protection first by the, by the new French government after its revolution. And actually then in the late 19th century you begin to see laws aimed specifically at the protection of archaeology, but they're aimed at essentially saying nobody but the government can dig up artifacts. The first one of those I've been able to find was in the Ottoman Empire in 1884. The U.S. got into the game in the early 19th century after uh, a Swedish explorer came to the United States, uh, Gustav Nordenskold, and took a lot of artifacts from the southwest back to Sweden. And this irritated um, the U.S. Congress, and they passed a law called the Antiquities Act 
that basically forbade the excavation of artifacts on federal and Indian land without a permit. Now, most governments around the country still have basically this kind of law, where the government can do whatever it bloody well chooses, but an individual had better not go out and dig anything up, uh, or they will get in trouble. For a long time, all the way through World War II, all the way through Indiana Jones's time, uh, that was about the only kind of law there was. But after World War II, and really after the 1950s, with the expansion of the interstate highway system, the urban renewal program, uh, reservoir building, and so on, that had impacts on archaeological sites, there began to be concern about the fact that the government itself was mucking up archaeological sites, old buildings, historic neighborhoods, and so on. And that led in the 1960s to um, the enactment of laws, essentially part of the National Historic Preservation Act in 1966 and the National Environmental Policy Act in 1969, that said, look before you leap. It said, government, before you decide to build a road, before you decide to build an urban renewal program or a reservoir, find out what you're going to mess up and try to do something to minimize uh, the messing up. That basically led to the whole system that we have today and the whole industry that we have today that we call cultural resource management. Okay. Lynn, can you give us a little bit more of an explanation as what the laws are, what is covered, what's not, how the process works in a very generic sense? Sure. It, it all depends on where you are. Um, the, the key variable um, in determining what kind of coverage archaeological sites have in terms of protection and consideration is what the land status is um, or who you are that's doing it, whether you're a federal agency or you're a private individual developing something on your own land. So it's not a single system, and um, and where you are and who you are makes a big difference. At the federal level, as Tom said, um, the sort of basic coverages come under the National Historic Preservation Act and under the National Environmental Policy Act. And those apply um, regardless of whose land you're on. Um, if you have a federal involvement in something, if you have federal money or federal permits or it's a, an action by a federal agency, any of those things will trigger compliance with those two laws. It doesn't say that um, the federal agency or the pipeline company that's getting a federal right-of-way or the, um, the individual is getting federal funding for something doesn't say that they can't destroy archaeological sites. It says that they have to think about it first. They have to um, determine what the effects are going to be and, um, and think about ways to avoid or minimize or, if necessary, to mitigate those effects. The whole point of the federal laws um, is about balance. It's about balancing needed development with preservation of our past. And it really comes, as Tom said, out of um, the whole milieu of what was going on in the 1950s and the 60s. Um, after World War II, there was this great crescendo of development of all sorts. And what we saw was that we were getting a lot of stuff that people wanted, like roads and clean water, drinking water, and additional irrigation water, and great electrical systems and everything, but the price was pretty high. 
um, in terms of impacts both on natural resources and on cultural resources, historic properties and archaeological sites especially. Um, so the, the notion of balance really comes heavily into the federal laws. So if you're on federal land or you're getting federal authorization or federal funding of some sort, those federal laws will kick in, whether you're a federal agency or a private developer, whoever you are. If, if we're talking about things that don't have that kind of federal involvement, then the, the, the um, picture gets a lot murkier. Um, if you're on state land, county land, local land, private land, um, there's a whole um, mishmash of laws and local ordinances that may or may not apply. Some states have really um, good protections for archaeological sites on lands under the control of subdivisions of the state, cities, counties, state trust land, whatever. Others have almost none. Um, some local governments have um, counties or city ordinances. Those can be very strong. Um, they can actually say you must preserve stuff. That's one of the few places where there are must preserves. So it's a much more of a patchwork, and um, most of the time on private land in the U.S., unless you have that kind of federal involvement of permits or money or licenses or whatever, um, there isn't a lot of protection for archaeological sites. We will get back to this topic and discuss jurisdictions and the the general uh, layout of the cultural, historic, and preservation sequences and and uh, law systems once we get back from break. Thank you. News, opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Explore the power and beauty in yourself and in others. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you. Every week, Stacy Stern will connect you with men and women who are living and working from a place of passion. Stacy's guests include successful authors, filmmakers, actors, experts, and leaders. You'll hear what inspires each of them, and you'll be turned on to great films, books, and new media. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's all about action. Scores. Taking a look at the NBA tonight. Highlights. He's broken loose. He's at the 30. And headlines. Big trade in the NFL this afternoon. When you are looking to talk sports, look no further than the Voice America Sports Network. We bring you some of the biggest names and all the sports news you can handle. Whether it's basketball. Off the glass. Football. Come on. Golf. Racing. Or the Olympics. We've got you covered. We'll even cover tailgating. Tune in to the Voice America Sports Network. It's all things sports. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein. We're back on our topic of cultural resource management and archaeology in the applied venues. Uh, we were talking about the jurisdictions that the federal government, that the states and municipalities have in cultural resources and archaeological situations. Lynn, I'd like to have you expand a little bit about that because these these laws and these statutes can integrate with one another and sometimes I would think that there might be some conflict between uh, municipalities and state laws and federal laws. Can you just break that down for us and identify the role of the State Historic Preservation Officer in these undertakings? Sure. Um, okay, so we were talking about a lot depends on who you are, whether you're a federal agency or not, um, and where you are, what the land status is, where you are, whether it's federal land, state land, local land. So if let's take an example and make this a little clearer. Let's say that um, you want to build a pipeline to carry natural gas from you know one state to another. You're going to go across federal land, you're, um, you know, the national uh, national forest land. You're going to go across um, land that's under the jurisdiction of the state. You're going to go across a bunch of private land. Um, you know, who who is in charge of this? Well, if you're doing it interstate, there is a federal permit um, from the the uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Um, so that sort of sets the stage for the federal law involvement. Um, so FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, um, is responsible for seeing that in addition to all the other stuff that you have to do to build your pipeline, you um, identify what uh, historic properties are out there, old buildings, um, historic neighborhoods, um, railroads, historic railroads, and archaeological sites. Um, if any of those things, and this is where it gets an interesting loop to it, if any of those things would be eligible for listing on the National Register of Historic Places, which is kind of the yardstick we use for deciding whether things have to be considered in federal process, if any of those things are eligible for the National Register, then you have to figure out what you're going to do to them. You know, how bad are you going to whack this historic property or how much of this archaeological site are you going to take? Can you avoid it? Um, so you ask all those questions, and if you can't avoid affecting things, you still build your pipeline just fine, but you have to decide how you're going to um, mitigate the effects that you're going to have. With archaeological sites, that's often scientific excavation. Um, there are other possible things, but um, that's what you do. You, everybody agrees what you're going to do, everybody being the federal agency, the pipeline company, the state historic preservation officer, who's a, a person in each state who is given the ability to comment on federal actions um, so that the, the, the people of the state have some voice in what federal agencies do. Um, uh, Indian tribes, federally recognized Indian tribes who have concerns or interests in the archaeological sites or other kinds of places that might be affected. Uh, the local governments get to have a seat at the table to comment on things. Um, the, the pipeline company itself gets a seat at the table. Other interested parties, 
um, folks who are, have concerns about the effect on historic properties. A whole bunch of people get to have a seat at the table and talk about what can we do? How can we um, get this pipeline built with the, the least possible impact on historic properties? So that's how the federal process works. Um, let's say you're building this pipeline and you're not going interstate. You're not getting any federal permits, any federal licenses. You're going across private land. You're going across some state land through municipal land. Then it's a much different question because the only laws that will apply are state or local, um, state laws or local ordinances. And it's going to depend from state to state, jurisdiction to jurisdiction, um, how much coverage there is or how much protection there is, if any. Okay. Um, Tom, tell us a little about it, about the National Register for Historic Places. What exactly is it and, and how do you get a listing in it? Well, the, the register is a list. It's a list maintained by the National Park Service. And one thing that often confuses people is that states also maintain lists, local governments maintain lists, and often local governments, which, as Lynn says, have the police power to basically say, thou shalt not destroy something, or thou shalt not paint your house pink, or thou shalt not dig up a tree. Um, they have that police power. The federal government doesn't. And so locally designated properties that are on some local list often are pretty much inviolate. You can't touch them. Um, but the National Register is not like that. The National Register is a list of properties that the basically the National Park Service says ought to be considered in planning. And that's what we do in the National Historic Preservation Act, as Lynn said, is, is consider these things in planning. Consider how they might, uh, how we might build or not build a project uh, in a manner that will uh, respect their historic or archaeological or cultural significance. Um, now, the list is maintained by the National Park Service, and one can ask questions. I ask questions a lot about whether it's appropriate for the federal government to decide what ought to be considered by federal agencies in planning. Why isn't that something that local people decide? But the way the law is set up, the National Register is the yardstick by which we uh, decide whether things have to be considered. Property doesn't have to be on the National Register, doesn't have to actually be listed, but it has to meet criteria for listing. It has to be eligible for listing. And if it is, then it is considered in planning under Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act, which is this whole process of consultation uh, to try to resolve adverse effects that Lynn alluded to. I want to step back for a second. I mean, we uh, we obviously have gone over how the process works in the United States, and uh, I think most of us would agree that this country is very private property oriented, and uh, that's not a mentality that's carried forth in a lot of other countries where uh, respect for heritage, for monuments, and for archaeological sites is considered, uh, well, not necessarily sacrosanct, sacrosanct but above the, the, the uh, 
the domain of the individual. Tom, could you tell us a little bit about how other countries work and how these preservation statutes get implemented and how the parties possibly work in that regard? Well, it, it varies widely, but generally speaking, most countries follow the dictum that archaeological stuff, at least, is the property of the state, it's the property of the crown, is the property of the sovereign. And whoever's land it's on, it is the property of, of the government. Now, how well that works and what the implications of it are is sort of up for grabs, but that tends to be the, the, the pattern. Uh, I had a case recently where my client had um, gone into Mexico and collected some artifacts and was thrown in jail for doing so. And the artifacts were from private land in Mexico, but they were owned by the national government of Mexico. He hired me to basically explain to the court in Mexico how he had gotten confused because in the United States, in the states of California, New Mexico, and Texas, where he had worked, artifacts on private land were not the property of the state, and it was perfectly okay for him to collect them from the landowner who had sold them to him. The court in Mexico was absolutely flabbergasted. They could not imagine that a country would not make all antiquities the property of the state. But that is the way it is in, in the United States. In most countries, in theory, and I, I do not think the system works very well, but in theory, all artifacts are the property of the state, and you don't dig them up without the state's permission unless you are, in fact, the state, the government, in which case you can pretty much do whatever you want. Other kinds of monuments, like buildings, uh, well, and monuments per se, are a little bit different in that somebody has to recognize them first as significant. And so most countries have uh, fairly elaborate systems for listing properties, very much like our National Register, where the property is somehow recognized as a historic monument, and then constraints are put on whether it can be modified, torn down, blown up, uh, or, or whatever. You add to this the fact that since the 1960s, there have been a number of international conventions, uh, mostly issued by UNESCO, that affect, once they're, they're concurred in by the various nations, uh, affect how properties of different kinds are taken care of. Uh, so there are conventions on international traffic in antiquities. There are conventions on uh, the World Heritage Convention that tries to establish a list of places that are important to the heritage of the whole world that ought to be protected and so on. So there, there are several layers that, that come in, particularly in the, in the international context. Uh You've talked a little bit about the trafficking in antiquities. I think that's a major issue right now. Um, Lynn, you've done a lot of work in the Southwest. Uh, what are the laws covering trafficking in antiquities at, uh, say, Mogollon or Anasazi sites where uh, the antiquities are obviously very recognizable and probably have a fair amount of worth on the open market? And uh, how, how, does, how is that dealt with? Well, the major law that covers um, uh, 
protection or uh, looting of archaeological sites um, in the U.S. is uh, the the Archaeological Resources Protection Act or ARPA. Um, interestingly, the very first law that Tom talked about, the first law in the U.S., also had to do with this issue, the Antiquities Act of 1906. Um, it's still on the books, but when um, people began to try to use that to in, in the in the 50s and 60s to to cut back on the looting um, on the public lands and on tribal lands um, in the U.S. It was pretty vague and um, was found to not really stand up in court. So the um, ARPA, the Archaeological Resources Protection Act, was passed in the 1970s um, as a way to really start to get a handle on looting on the public lands and tribal lands as well. So... ARPA makes it a crime, and again, this is different from the National Historic Preservation Act that we were talking about with the pipeline guy. Um, that applies no matter what the land status is, as long as there's federal involvement. ARPA is specific to federal and tribal land. Um, so any anyone who loots an archaeological site on the public lands, um, <coughs> excuse me, is um, subject to prosecution under ARPA. It's a federal felony. It has um, both um, civil and criminal penalties are a possibility. There are jail terms. There are fines. There is confiscation of the equipment being used. So if a guy's using his backhoe to loot an archaeological site, he can lose that equipment as well. Um, it's a law that has pretty good teeth, um, and it has had some success, but it's difficult um, in a couple of ways. One is sort of by definition, most archaeological sites are out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so, you know, the average passerby um, doesn't necessarily see them and stop them. Um, Lynn, so, I'm going to have to stop you here. We have okay. to go to break, but we'll pick this up right after right. we get back from these few words. Thank you. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. 
Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations, who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Joe Shulden, Ryan, and we're back discussing archaeology and the law, and Lynn Sebastian was telling us a little bit about the prosecution and uh, the procedures that are in place for illicit trafficking in artifacts uh, in her part of the world, in the Southwest and other places. Why don't you uh, continue to expand on that, Lynn, and tell us a little bit about, about that. So we were talking about why ARPA, um, some of the, the problems with applying ARPA to solve a looting issue, which is sites are out in the middle of nowhere. It's not like people stumble over them, uh, over the looters at work every day. Um, so finding the people who are doing this and then making the proof um, also, which um, is, you know, if you find somebody with, uh, with you know, a $10,000 member's bowl, um, and he says, well, I got it off private land. I didn't take it off federal land, and it's perfectly legal on, on private land if the landowner allows the person to excavate the site. Um, so making the proof is difficult, but um, there have been some successes. And, you know, looting is a, is a kind of an interesting issue. Um, you know, what's the, where's the line between um, criminal uh, behavior and um, avocational hobbyist kind of behavior. Um, and we've had some um, some difficult discussions about that lately here in the Southwest. Um, on the one hand, we have the guys who are, um, and we have found trafficking in lots of illegal stuff, illegal guns, illegal drugs, illegal antiquities. You know, pretty clearly this is one law we can use to, to shut people down who are behaving in that way. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, mom and pop out um, on the weekend and they find a ball in a cave, um, you know, how that's more of an educational issue and a way of um, an opportunity to get people engaged positively in archaeology rather than punitively. Um, there are a lot of a lot of concerns about you know how native people feel about the sites that contain their ancestors um, being disturbed by people who are doing it for commercial purposes or any purpose for that matter uh, in archaeology so there there are a lot of different issues. One other issue that is interesting about ARPA is that if um, even though mostly it applies on federal land and tribal land. There is a provision that if things are ga- are gotten illegally under any law, let's say a guy trespasses onto someone's private land without their permission, digs up stuff, and takes it across the state line in interstate trafficking, then it becomes an ARPA violation. Um, so that's been really helpful 
um, for dealing with cases where the landowner is trying really hard to protect an archaeological site and people come out without his permission. Um, and we do have lots of landowners who have done a fabulous job of understanding the importance of these places and protecting them. So in some ways, ARPA is a, is a, a good way to protect private property rights as well as sort of the public interest in, um, in, in preserving our past. I want to get back to Native American issues in a couple of minutes, but first, uh, on this theme of looting and uh, the prosecution of looters and those types of situations, Tom, you've had a fair amount of experience dealing with offshore situations where uh, private companies or a team of people, not necessarily academics, go down into uh, the site offshore and uh, have information on shipwrecks that have sunk, say, a Spanish galleon off the coast of Florida or a civil warship uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, what has been your experience and what is your perspective on that type of, quote, let's call it looting or that kind of research and looting and for-profit venture uh, for offshore fines? Well, I think we have an awful mix-up of law and public policy and people's preferences and so on. I mean, Lynn uses the term looter. I hate to hear people talk about looters. Sure, there are looters, but there are also people, as Lynn said. There are the folks who are just out there. They're interested. They're as interested in archaeology as any of the rest of us are. They just don't happen to be professionally certified archaeologists. And they want to experience the past, Mm -hmm. and they get swept up just like everybody else. I tend to think that ARPA is uh, about on a par with our marijuana laws. Uh, (laughs) We try to control drugs through police action, and it's ridiculous. It didn't work with booze, and it's not going to work. It doesn't work with drugs, and it doesn't work with artifacts. Uh, we've had we've had ARPA now for 35, 40 years, and if anything, the uh, the commercial trafficking in antiquities has done nothing but in, increase. Um, I don't think it works, and I think we ought to be looking at other options that are more cooperative um, than than punitive. I think we'd save money, and I think we'd save more antiquities. It gets particularly ridiculous uh, offshore, particularly in the deep water areas. I know of companies that are profit-making companies. They are, if you will, treasure salvage companies that have access to the equipment to excavate archaeological sites, shipwrecks, and so on, in very deep water, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of meters deep. And they do it, frankly, very, very well. Um... I've, the, the work that I've seen done by the particular treasure salvage group that I have worked with, uh, Odyssey, um, is, in my opinion, far better than any field archaeology I've seen done anywhere else, underwater or on land. And they're doing it hundreds of meters under the ocean. We're and you're saying this from a professional perspective. In other words, you think professionally they're better at it. I think they're professionally better. I think they keep better records. I think they write better reports. I think they do better conservation of the artifacts. The only thing they do that's different, other than being better, is that they sell 
a percentage of the material that they excavate. After they analyze it, after they record it, after they catalog it, and they actually break it down so that they're only selling the commercially, the industrially fabricated stuff like bottles and coins, which tend to be the most valuable anyway. The rest of it stays together and is made available for for interpretation. Uh, But under both a UNESCO convention and the laws of most nations, they are looters. They are prohibited. If if there's any way to prohibit them, uh, they will be prohibited from excavating sites. Meanwhile, shipwrecks, for example, are getting wiped out right and left by deep water fishing, uh, fish trawlers that are trawling along the bottom of the ocean with these monstrous big clamshell-like scoops that scrape the bottom and rip up whatever's there. They're destroying the environment and they're destroying the shipwrecks. We ignore that and we get all excited over the very careful work of shipwreck salvers. It's ridiculous. But so you're saying that there's a justification for this because there's a level of professionalism, and on the other hand, those companies are investing their capital in doing this kind of work. They're conforming to international standards, so they should be basically entitled to do this. Absolutely. Okay. Lynn, any comment on that? or? Well, Tom and I are going to disappoint our audience who loves to hear us argue about things, but in in large measure, um, I actually agree with him. Um, I think that, that, yes, I I was involved in a case here um, having to do with a member's site. Um, The the member's bowls and, um, and other pottery are extremely valuable in the international market and so every member site um, in New Mexico, which is where almost all of them are, um, looks like it's been through World War II. There are craters and craters and craters in every room. Um, And there was a case here where a young man wanted to um, purchase one of the sites that became available and um, try to preserve it. And he and his dad were going to to buy the site. They were going to um, uh, backfill, record and backfill all of those holes that the, that people had dug in it. Um, they were going to preserve everything that they could, and he was going to get his master's degree um, writing his thesis about um, all of the information that was still available from the site and preserve the rest of it. The kicker was the only way he could afford to do this would be to sell a couple of the members' bowls because they didn't have the money um, to pay off the site. And so they were going to record them. They were going to try to sell them to museums where they'd be available for research. They were going to record them in every possible way. Um, but that was the only way that they could preserve the site. The alternative was we could let somebody who wanted to, lo- to just completely loot out the rest of it buy it. And I was the state archaeologist here then, and I said, I think we should do that. I think we should let him... Um, you know, do what he's proposing, and we could we'll have the site. You know, we can take the moral high ground, and in ten years we'll have the moral high ground and no site, or we can right. let him do what he is asking to do. So, I, I do think that there is room for for that kind of negotiation. How did that work? So, out then? Um, it worked out great, by the way. He got his master's. The site's all been preserved. It's all paid off, and now they've turned it over to the Archaeological Conservancy for. Um, you know, for preservation and perpetuity and um, ongoing research. Great. 
So you're judging basically each situation on its own particular yeah. circumstances. You bet. And, so, and, and there's not necessarily a universal precedent for any of this. Yeah, I think, you, as Tom says, you always have to look at, well, you know, what's going to happen if we don't do this? You know, are the fishing trawlers going to destroy it anyway? Um, are, is the site going to be bought by people who are going to finish, you know, bulldozing it? Um, what's going to happen here? So, yeah, I, I tend to not not be real black and white about stuff. Which is probably not a good thing for the incoming president of the Registry of Professional Archaeologists, but um, there's, there, I think there is room for negotiation. And on that note, we go to break again, and we'll be back with our last segment following these messages. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. I'm with my guests, Lynn Sebastian and Tom King, and we're discussing various aspects of archaeological law. Over the past few years, there has certainly been an increased influence of Native Americans in the compliance process and their involvement in the entire process and and in the determination of what is archaeological and what is culturally significant has become more and more significant. Uh, Tom, would you give us a little bit of a perspective on traditional cultural properties and that how that entered into the archaeological and cultural resource management picture over the past few years? Well, sure. Uh, what what happened? Um, and I should say, back in the 1980s, I was working for the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, which is this tiny little federal agency that oversees compliance with Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act. And as we've discussed, the National Register is sort of the, the key to what gets 
considered for preservation and what doesn't. If something isn't eligible for the National Register, then by and large it is not considered for preservation. I think that's unfortunate, I think that's wrong, but that's the way the law has evolved. In the 1980s, we found that the the way the law was being interpreted was such that if a place didn't impress an archaeologist or an architectural historian, if it was an old building, it couldn't be regarded as eligible for the National Register. And so you had all these local communities, and particularly Indian tribes, who were saying, look, this mountain, this rock, this lake, this uh, body of water, this stream, this spring, uh, or this site full of our ancestors' bones, is eligible for the National Register, and we want to make sure that it is considered in planning. And the courts, as well as the National Park Service, were saying, no, 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 it's not eligible and particularly the state historic preservation officers and the consultants and the federal agencies were saying, no, it's not eligible because our archaeologists can't see it. Oh, hold on here. I, now, now we'll have the, the what everybody's been waiting for. Because part of the problem with traditional cultural places was not that archaeologists couldn't see them, but that they were discussed and described and thought of by the tribes in terms of religion. And there is an exception in the National Register that says that places um, of religious places where religious ceremonies or religious services are held for a community are not eligible just for that reason. They have to have other values. Right. And our problem was that we weren't thinking um, expansively enough or creatively enough about other values. We were we were stuck on the religious exception. Well, the religious exception, we could get into a great length, but <laughs> let's, in the key case that caused us to write the National Register guidance that deals with traditional cultural properties, and that was the San Francisco Peaks in Arizona, the Hopi and Navajo were specifically saying this mountain is eligible for the National Register because of its significance to us. And the Forest Service effect flatly said, our archaeologists went up there and didn't see anything, therefore it's not eligible. The tribe said, of course they didn't see anything. We don't go up there because it's so sacred. Um, we felt that the playing field needed to be leveled, that there needed to be a recognition that the National Register was not just about what was important to archaeologists and architectural historians. It was about what was important to communities, even if those communities phrased their values in quote-unquote religious terms. Mm -hmm. And so my colleague and wife and I, Patricia Parker, wrote uh, at the request of the Advisory Council and the National Park Service, wrote National Register Bulletin 38, which invented the term traditional cultural property and said, in essence, that if a community says that it associates a place with its traditional beliefs, its traditional values, its traditional identity, then that place can be eligible for the National Register and that place needs to be considered in planning. Um, that's become a tremendously controversial and tremendously litigious uh, part of the whole uh, Section 106 compliance process, but it um, has worked to get a degree of protection, a degree of consideration 
for a lot of places that tribes and other communities think are important that just may not impress an archaeologist or an architectural historian. Because there are conceptual differences in what are being defined here, and so it's more difficult to get a common denominator, I'm guessing, correct? Well, sure, there's no common denominator, because the archaeologist is looking at the artifacts on the ground, the artifacts in the ground, the research value of those things. The Indian tribe, as an example, is looking at the stories, the songs that go back to the ancestors that talk about how this place is connected with the origins of the tribe, uh, where the ancestors came from, how they lived, and, and so on. Uh, a very different sort of perspective. I'm working on a case right now where the archaeologists have said, okay, there are 472 little individual archaeological sites out here, and we can design all these windmills to avoid them, and therefore there's no problem. And the tribe say, wait a minute, it's not the individual little piles of stone that are important here. It's the whole landscape, the view across the landscape, how we can look out from this site and look at the mountains on the other side. Those are the important things. That's what has to be considered in deciding what the impacts of this project will be. And, and I, so, yeah, I think Tom just said the, the key word here, which is landscapes. I mean, the reason that, that traditional cultural properties have become um, not so controversial and so litigious is often because of their scale. Um, you know, it's one thing to be able to preserve a, a, a single point on the landscape, but when you have hundreds of square miles of landscape, all of which have these sacred qualities or these um, cultural qualities that are important, um, then that whole issue of finding the balance between preservation and development in the Section 106 process that is the sort of underlying principle of the law, it's very difficult to find any sort of balance. You know, where could we put this that we wouldn't run into that problem? But that's the genius of the Section 106 process as opposed to the way local, local government preservation programs work. The local government says, once we've designated this thing as historic, you can't touch it. Uh, you can't do anything to it without a permit or something of that kind. Section 106 process isn't like that. It says, we're going to see what people think is significant out here, and then we're going to negotiate about whether and how we can minimize impact on it, mitigate impact on it. And in the final analysis, if you can't reach agreement, then the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation renders an advisory comment and the action agency that's responsible for the project makes a decision. That's what happened a few months ago in, the in Nantucket Sound, in the case of Cape Wind, great big wind power project out in the middle of Nantucket Sound. turned out that all of Nantucket Sound is eligible for the National Register as a traditional cultural property. And people said, oh, my God, we can't do that because then we can't build our wind farm. Well, the Advisory Council actually said, no, you shouldn't build your wind farm for several very good and proper reasons. No agreement could be reached about building it. But in the final analysis, it was up to the Secretary of the Interior, and the Secretary of the Interior said, rightly or wrongly, that basically the interests in wind energy superseded the cultural values of the tribes involved. Now, you can like that or not like that, but that's the way the system, the system works. It's not a closed system that, that says... If the tribe recognizes a, 
a 4,000-acre area is eligible, you can't touch it. It's one that says if the tribe recognizes that, then you consider it, and you talk to the tribe, and you try to negotiate things out, which is really what the government ought to do with federally recognized tribes, and I would say what the federal government ought to do with any citizen in a democracy. On that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up. It's an open question and something that I think we'll uh, look forward to discussing in the future. I have to end here. I want to thank my guests, Tom King and Lynn Sebastian, for acquainting our listenership with the new and singular ways that archaeology is changing in the 21st century. The law is clearly a very major issue that we're going to be dealing with going forward. Uh, thanks so much for participating in the program, and we will be back next week with yet another glimpse of archaeology, this time archaeology in the private sector. Until then, thanks so much for listening to our program, and remember that your understanding of the past is a guide to a more promising tomorrow. Until then, this is Joe Schildenrein. Thank you for listening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.